Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Douglas MacArthur and the First World War, Part 1, The Formation of the Rainbow With America's entrance into the First World War, Major Douglas MacArthur knew he would be a part of it, but not in what capacity. American neutrality, strictly enforced by President Woodrow Wilson, was shattered in early 1917. The reinstatement of German unrestricted submarine warfare, the release of the Zimmerman telegram, and the fall of the Romanov dynasty in Russia led President Wilson to finally abandon neutrality and call for a declaration of war against Imperial Germany and the Central Powers. MacArthur, along with the rest of the minuscule United States Army General Staff, worked in a fury to prepare for a general mobilization. Among the General Staff, a debate raged over the type of American army that was supposed to be sent to France. MacArthur's fervent belief in the qualities of the National Guard made his views of inestimable value to Secretary of War Newton Baker, and it was those views that led to his serving in France with a very special National Guard division one made up by units from 26 different states that stretched across the United States like a rainbow. It was with great relief that the Allies received the news of America's declaration of war on April 6, 1917. After almost three years of war, their armies and populations were exhausted. The Allies needed troops and had visions of American boys purring into France by the millions. Both France and Britain sent missions to the United States following the declaration of war. In late April, Foreign Secretary Arthur J. Balfour arrived in Washington with the British, and three days later, a French delegation that included Field Marshal Joseph Joffrey reached America. Both delegations came to the United States hoping to hear that American troops would soon be arriving in the war zone. On 2 May, Joffrey, the hero of the Marne, visited President Woodrow Wilson and insisted that at least one American division be sent to France immediately. The problem was there wasn't a division ready to be sent. It was a shock for Balfour and Joffrey when they found out that at the most the United States could have a half a million men in France by December 1917. The United States was completely unprepared for war. In 1903, the General Staff was created in an attempt to make it the brains of the United States Army, an organization meant to streamline bureaucratic waste and wrestle with the problems of organization, training, and preparedness for war. Fears of a militaristic, Prussian-style general staff, however, kept it small and with little power. The general staff was established with the chief of staff of the army at its head, but his authority was undercut by the bureau heads of the army, like the Ordnance, Artillery, or Adjutant General's Office. They all still reported directly to the Secretary of War, and some felt the chief of staff had no control over them. In 1912, Chief of Staff Leonard Wood took on a recalcitrant adjutant general's office with charges of insubordination. It was the first step in giving the chief of staff the control needed to prepare the army for war. Preparedness of the United States armed forces had been a topic of debate and argument since the turn of the century. General Wood was a vocal advocate of preparedness and believed that was the function of the general staff, but his term as chief of staff ended in 1914, just before the outbreak of war in Europe. With war in Europe, it would only seem natural that the War Department and the General Staff would be focusing all their energy on preparing the military.
President Wilson's stance on neutrality, however, forced inertia on them. The Army's focus was kept on the administration's policy of military interference in Mexico. Wilson didn't want any planning of any kind that appeared antagonistic to either the Allies or the Central Powers. As 1914 passed into 1915, President Wilson felt the political pressure to address the military situation in the United States. The sinking of the Lusitania by a German submarine raised war fever in the United States. And though General Wood left the position of Chief of Staff, he continued to preach preparedness to the rest of the Army and the country. Wilson tried to counter Wood by labeling the idea of America's unpreparedness as folly. Most troubling to the President, however, was the fact that people were listening to Wood, saying enough wasn't being done to build up the military. The President responded with the National Defense Act. He wasn't ready to plan for war, but he instructed the Navy and Army to present a plan for a gradual buildup of the armed forces to placate his critics. It was a hollow effort and even led to the resignation of Wilson's Secretary of War, Lindley M. Garrison. Garrison testified he wanted to create a 500,000-man Continental Army with 100,000 men in the ranks and a 400,000-man reserve. Yet the Secretary's plan met political opposition from those who dreaded a large standing army and those that favored maintaining the National Guard. Eventually, Wilson backed the plan of Virginia Congressman James Hay, calling for an increase in the National Guard. Garrison resigned before the passage of the Act. The National Defense Act of 1916 increased the ranks of the regular Army and the National Guard over a five-year period. It also gave the President the power to federalize the Guard in time of war, but nothing was done to prepare them for the kind of war that was going on in Europe. Leonard Wood and former President Theodore Roosevelt, who detested Wilson's neutrality, were disgusted with the National Defense Act, thinking the public would now think the problem was addressed. They joined forces and energetically continued to preach preparedness and the need for an army of millions until the declaration of war. War's declaration began the process of preparation that should have begun back in 1914. General John J. Pershing, the man selected to lead the American Expeditionary Force to France, visited the War Department in May before leaving for Europe. He was astonished at the level of unpreparedness. In 1917, the build-up of the army had to begin from scratch. An army of millions was needed to win the war, and conscription was the only way to get enough men swiftly. Soon after Germany reinstated unrestricted submarine warfare in February 1917, one of the events that drew America into the war, the General Staff and the War Department began to work on the process to begin the draft. Secretary of War Newton Baker, who took over from Garrison in 1916, and Chief of Staff General Hugh Scott, who took over from Wood in 1914, put the plan for the draft together. Shortly after the declaration of war, the draft act circulated through Congress. Many members of Congress were reluctant to approve. Just as they feared a large standing army and a Prussian-style general staff, they also didn't like the idea of mandatory service that had caused so much resentment during the American Civil War. That was one of the reasons the draft was called selective service. The War Department also wisely decided to make the apparatus for the draft civilian rather than military. Selective service, therefore, became a community matter and the duty of citizens. Doubts were overcome and the act was passed. Some believed it was Secretary Baker's War Department press censor who really made the difference. Major Douglas MacArthur had been serving as the press censor for the War Department since 1916. It was his former mentor, General Leonard Wood, who taught him the value of having the press on your side, and it was a lesson MacArthur never forgot. 
Every day the journalists and newspapermen gathered at his desk, just down from the office of the Secretary of War. His vocabulary, style, and forthright delivery earned him the respect of the entire press corps. Around the time of the declaration of war, 29 of them signed a letter ringing with endorsement of the Major. It took all of MacArthur's talents to win the press, and therefore the country, over to the idea of selective service. On May 18, 1917, the Draft Act passed, and by war's end, over three million men were conscripted into service. The question was, how were they to be organized? At some point during the Draft Act's circulation and subsequent passage through Congress, a report was circulated through the General Staff with the endorsement of the Chief of Staff, General Hugh Scott. The report outlined how conscription would enlarge the force of the regular army to 500,000 men and the National Guard would not be used in the war in Europe. MacArthur was a great believer in the citizen soldier and a strong advocate of the National Guard. His vision was that in time of war, the professionalized, regular army should be broken up to train and command the state guard units. In the pre-war years, he said the general staff was fractionalized between those who believed in a vast increase of the regular army and those who pushed for increasing and training the guard. MacArthur was the leader of the faction backing the National Guard, and eventually he was ordered to stop talking about it amongst the staff. Using the National Guard made sense. Many units had just been serving on the Mexican border and were ready for service. When the report came to MacArthur's desk, he looked it over and then wrote on it that he disagreed with the findings. He didn't elaborate, thinking his views were of little notice. Secretary of War Newton Baker did notice and called MacArthur into his office. MacArthur arrived thinking he was about to receive a reprimand, but instead Baker told him he agreed with his views on the National Guard. The secretary then took MacArthur with him to the White House to discuss the matter with President Wilson. MacArthur had met the President on many occasions, and at one time even turned down an offer to be his aide, as he had been for President Theodore Roosevelt. Wilson listened to their argument and agreed with Baker and MacArthur. The National Guard became part of the American mobilization. The regular Army divisions would recruit up to strength and be numbered 1 through 25. The state and regional National Guard units would do the same and be in divisions number 26 to 42. Finally, conscription would fill new divisions of a national army created for the emergency and be in divisions number 43 and up. Eventually, all classifications were stripped and it was one army in which conscripted troops were replacements for all divisions. As Secretary of War Newton Baker later explained, now that the National Guard was committed, the question became which unit should be the first to go. Only the Pennsylvania and New York Guard divisions were up to strength, so it was natural they would be the first. But Baker saw deeper into the problem, and thought of the national psychology. Maybe a state would resent having its boys be the first to go. Baker was talking with the head of the General Staff's Militia Bureau, Brigadier General William Mann, about the problem. The Militia Bureau was the section of the General Staff that was responsible for federalizing the National Guard, as prescribed in the National Defense Act of 1916. Baker asked if a composite division could be made out of troops from a number of states and then be the first to go overseas. Mann, a West Point graduate of 1875 and veteran of the Spanish-American War and Philippine insurrection, believed it could be done. Douglas MacArthur was there during the discussion, and then he and Mann retired to investigate the possibility. Upon their return, Mann said yes, unattached units from various states across the country could be brought together to form a full division. MacArthur spoke up, saying, Fine, that will stretch over the country like a rainbow. In the days that followed, MacArthur, as press censor, explained to the newspapermen 
how this new unit, slated to be the first to go overseas, was a composite division of units from multiple states that stretched over the country like a rainbow. The press picked up on the term and started calling the unit the Rainbow Division. It was known as the Rainbow Division before it ever became the 42nd Infantry Division. Douglas MacArthur was a valuable officer to the Secretary of War. His handling of the press had been exemplary. His performance on duty with the General Staff was always first-rate, and he earned high praise from Chiefs of Staff Leonard Wood and his successor Hugh Scott. Baker, however, knew the young major's future was with the American Expeditionary Force in France. The Secretary offered command of the Rainbow Division to Brigadier General Mann, but it was on the condition that Douglas MacArthur was his Chief of Staff. Mann was enthusiastic at the suggestion. Shortly after selecting Mann as division commander, Baker asked the Major what he thought of Mann taking over the Rainbow. MacArthur said he would need a good Chief of Staff. Baker offered him the job on the spot, with a promotion to the rank of colonel and a choice to remain in the engineers or transfer to the infantry. MacArthur said all he could think about was his father's 24th Wisconsin Infantry in the American Civil War, and he blurted out, Infantry. The new colonel angered the chief of engineers by his choice, but he left with no regrets. Soon MacArthur and Mann were constructing the division. They selected unattached guard units to fill out the table of organization for the 27,000-man division. Twice the size of British or French divisions, and about the size of a corps in the American Civil War, the divisional scheme of the United States Army in the First World War was a brigade-based system. It was meant to be the largest element of a corps, having all the units and equipment to make it a self-sustaining entity. Artillery, infantry, engineers, ambulance, medical, supply trains, military police, they all made up the division, and in the case of the Rainbow, each one came from a different state. Controlling the Militia Bureau, Mann had the authority to select any unit he wished and secure all the equipment available for this special, truly national division. On August 1st, the order went out to the National Guard units selected to report for duty and form the Rainbow. They were to congregate on Long Island, on the Hempstead Plain, near the train stop at Garden City. So in the summer of 1917, as Colonel Douglas MacArthur closed his office at the War Department and another phase of his career, the Hempstead Plain and the Rainbow Division awaited his arrival. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.